0: Welcome to Ethical Seduction, where we help you get the sex and relationships that you want, both in and out of the bedroom. Um, do you, I'm wondering, do you have the talk about STIs and sexual health with your partners before you sleep with them? Um, do you want to know if there's something that you should be aware of um, or something that you should ask about before you play with someone just to keep everyone safe and happy? Um, Today, we're going to discuss how you can easily start these types of conversations and demonstrate that you're a fun and sexy person while also being caring and safe. My name is Ava, I'll be your host today, and joining me for this discussion is the wonderful nurse Brandy. <laughs> hey! <laughs> um, and I'm going to hand things directly over to Brandy, um, just because I think that you will have a lot of really great information on this topic today because of your more clinical background. Um, I know that you have some thoughts that you want to share about some various like types of STIs and such, so I'm going to hand the mic directly over to you and let you run the show.
1: Oh, I will take it because I need all the time I can get. So um, I've in the past at the Mark, our local kink and sex positive community center, I've taught a class called fun with fluids. And so I am a heavy um, body fluid player, I guess. And so part of that for me is always having conversations about STDs and STIs and our risk level and what we're comfortable with and what we're not and history of and what would we do if we did get one and if we were exposed and all that. So this comes pretty comfortable to me and is in my wheelhouse. I will say I do not know STDs by heart. Um, so I'm still, I have notes that I made because we have a very limited amount of time. And so I wanted to make sure that I hit the highlights of the, about seven of them that are either the most common or maybe have the most stigma around them, or just ones that you just need more information on. So I will be referring to notes because I want to make sure that I don't forget anything. So you'll see me looking down for a lot, but at any time Ava stop me, it might give me a time to take a breather. Tell me if I'm going too fast, please. (laughs) But the first one we're going to start with is chlamydia. And when I start with each one, I'm just going to tell you right out of the gate if it's curable or not. Chlamydia is curable. It is uh, STD that is curable with antibiotics. So, you know, they say that if you're presented information, you might remember 10% of it. So I just want to start there that chlamydia is curable. Um, And one of the reasons that kind of will make an STD curable versus not curable is a bacterial infection like chlamydia is curable because it's treated with antibiotics, whereas a viral infection like genital herpes, that is a viral infection that's not curable, but it's treatable and manageable. So sometimes people get confused about which ones are which. So that's kind of one way you can kind of break that down. Um, So when
0: you say, when you say treatable and manageable, you're saying that like, if I get this, I can never get rid of it, but I can treat it so that it's, it's less of a pain in my life, less of a hindrance.
1: Correct. So if you, you could be a person that gets genital herpes from a partner or partners, and then you have one outbreak and then you never have an outbreak again. But you will still have that virus in your system, whether it lays dormant or not, it'll still be there. Um, one example could be like chicken pox. You can get chicken pox and it after you have the breakout, even though that's not an STD, obviously, it re- will remain dormant in your system. And then as an older adult, you can get shingles, which is kind of like an offspring of chicken, chicken pox when it like outbreaks again, if you will. Um. But for example, at the chickenpox, there's a vaccine for that now. So one of the STDs we're going to talk about is HPV. And then that one is not curable, but it is preventable because it has a vaccine available. So we get into all kinds of stuff. So basically what you need to know about chlamydia is um, some people can have no symptoms at all and go for weeks with it and not know that they have it. And so it is one that can be spread without your knowledge which can kind of be scary and I but as soon as you know your partner says hey I tested positive for chlamydia it is then their responsibility to let all their other partners know that they've come in contact with that they have been put at risk um whether intentional or not it's in and I think people can relate to this more now with COVID happening because it's like that contact tracing Mm -hmm. what you're doing with COVID is what you would do with an STD basically Um, and so again, that could,
0: yes. So, so if it's possible to get chlamydia and not have any symptoms at all, then what is the concern? What's the big deal with getting chlamydia? Why is it so terrible?
1: So even though you don't have symptoms, you could still have the bacteria in your system. So Mm -hmm. if you had chlamydia and you gave it to me and I didn't know it and I had no symptoms, um, And then you told me, Hey, I have chlamydia. I can, I I should still go get tested to see if I have the bacteria, which Mm -hmm. still needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. So just like, um, with illnesses, some people react differently to a bacteria. Some people have a really severe symptoms from it and some don't have any at all. So just because you don't have any symptoms, doesn't mean it's not like present in your body. I mean, you could have been exposed and it you know, not latched on. Right. Um, But you would still need to get tested. So
0: just because I don't have symptoms necessarily, just because it's not a pain in my life doesn't mean that for the next person, it might not severely impact their life because they may have symptoms.
1: Right. Exactly. And so when we talk about those symptoms um, in women or um, humans that have a vagina, then you're going to have vaginal discharge or burning with urination or pain. I'm trying to go back and forth between how clinical to be. I'm like, should I say urinating or should I just say pissing? You know, um, <laughs> and then with men that you, um, that have a or penis, um, individuals with a penis that you're going to have discharge from the penis burning with urination or pain, and then they can have pain and or swelling of one or both testicles. Mm. So, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, it's, and the thing about this, when you have an STD, um, sometimes they can present as mild symptoms, like for females, like a yeast infection or a urinary tract infection, which are not always sexually transmitted diseases. They can be because you wore, um, wet clothes too long or like really perfumed stuff that will cause the imbalance there. So these symptoms can be mild and kind of easy to dismiss. But, I mean, they'll certainly get annoying enough for you to want to seek out to see what's going on.
0: Yeah. Um, so if you ever have sense. any of
1: those symptoms, you want to get it looked at, no matter what it is. So it can be treated or dealt with. So um, so every mm-hmm. time that I
0: suspect that I might have, uh, like, a UTI is a good time for me to get tested. Is that is that the message?
1: No. I would go to your doctor, and mm-hmm. then they can test you for a UTI, um, like a urine sample test. We'll, we'll test specifically for, like, UTI um, results. And then like, let's say like the UTI came back normal. They might be like, okay, that we might need to test for this or test for that. Um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds totally reasonable. Um, based on physical assessment and subjective, um, information that you're giving them. Got you. Cool. Okay. So the biggest thing, um, I guess you need to know about chlamydia is that it's treated with antibiotics and it will resolve within one to two weeks. So during that treatment time, um, you need to abstain from sex because it's it's like you're taking an antibiotic. You need to finish the course of that antibiotic. And then I always, depending on some STDs, say you need to abstain from sex for 10 days after treatment is over. So for me, especially when I can't remember which one's which, I, in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to abstain for 10 days after, no matter what type of STD it is, just to make sure I don't get them confused. So you finish your, your treatment, your course of antibiotics, and then you continue to not have sex for 10 days. And And so when when discussing,
0: um, like what, what, can you tell me, I guess what you mean by abstaining from sex? Like, is that specifically like PNV or is that no toys or is that no masturbating? Like, what does that mean?
1: So it's being exposed to the bodily fluids that can pass on the bacteria. So So, the bacteria can be, um, on the penis, it can be in cum or semen. Um, it can be passing vaginal fluids. So any contact with fluids.
0: So is it any contact where, like, if, if I were the person that had chlamydia, it, does that mean that like, I'm not having sex in order to not potentially give it to someone else? Or is it dangerous for me to like give myself an orgasm?
1: No, you can give yourself an orgasm. And that leads into the next um, information I wanted to give about if chlamydia and STDs can stay on sex toys. So uh-huh. chlamydia um, has a very short life outside of the body. It likes that warm internal environment. And so outside of the body, it doesn't last very long. So the likelihood of it hanging around on your toys, very, very, very minimal. However, they still recommend... If you have chlamydia and you want a self-pleasure and, or even if someone has chlamydia and you all have agreed, okay, I will do something with you with this sex toy. Um, You need to clean the sex toy and then let it stay out of service for 24 hours to air Mm. dry after the cleaning. That's good to know. That's just, I know. I was like, yeah, I need to know about those sex toys. And then when I read that, I was like, Keeping a sex, like, what if it's like my go-to sex toy being out of commission for twenty? Maybe hours. you need to buy a backup one, buy a spare. Right, like, right. give me an excuse. <laughs> right, put a condom on it or something too. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, the more you know about chlamydia, so just know it is curable. Um, can I? Can I ask can another also question? Be diag- that can also be diagnosed with a urine test, or they can hmm. do a swab. A swab can oh, diagnose it as well. That's good to know. Yes.
0: Um, Can you tell me what the difference between an STD and an STI is?
1: Yes. So we're kind of going back and forth, but it, so you, you live in this class of like, yes, a bacteria is an infection and, but an infection is still a disease. But if I wanted to really break it down, I would say an STI is something that's curable, whereas a disease is something that's not. Um, mm. But we do in the medical field kind of go back and forth. So technically, I could say that chlamydia is an STI because it's an infection that can be cured. If I'm talking about genital herpes, which cannot be cured, I would say that's an STD because that moves into the disease category because it doesn't um, get cured. That makes sense. I've definitely hear some some heard some stigma terms. around saying STD, and I think STI kind of takes that stigma out for some reason for some people. Um, I'm not sure why, but it does seem to resonate a little bit softer with people to say STI versus STD. What were you going to say? Yeah,
0: I, I was going to say, I've heard mm-hmm. the term like sexually transmitted infection versus sexually transmitted disease. I've heard them used very interchangeably over the years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember several years ago, quite a few years ago now, that, that the definition that you just gave matches pretty much with what I was taught, that a sexually transmitted infection is something that is curable, whereas a sexually mm-hmm. transmitted disease is something that is not curable, but is treatable. Um, right. But over the years, I see it used more and more interchangeably, like there really isn't a difference. And I do agree with you that like I think STI has less stigma around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like at the end of the day, whatever it's going to take to make people comfortable with talking about it and discussing it, right. Like whatever is going to make sure. that conversation easier. Like that's, that's yeah. kind of what I lean toward. Um, but and based I think on like, maybe, the,
1: mm-hmm. go ahead.
0: I, I think based on the definition that you have just shared. So we would say that chlamydia is an STI, but mm-hmm. that genital herpes is an STD.
1: Correct. And like HIV would be an STD as well. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a makes disease because it's not curable. Um, okay. and I guess, you know, in the medical world, yeah, we like to differentiate between what's an infection and what's a disease. And and I get that, but I'm not really sure when and how that hit mainstream. Mm. Um and it, but yeah, people do use it interchangeably a lot for sure. Cool. Okay. All right, next one, syphilis. Now, I'm really being horrible with the time here, but syphilis is another one that is curable. So that makes it a bacterial infection, which makes it an STI, not an STD. Now, syphilis is one of those um, that has several phases to it, which means you can have like a stage one syphilis and, or a phase one, phase two, and phase three. So <clears throat> while it's curable, if it gets to the later phase, or maybe it's four phases, four phases, if it gets to the the last phase, it can also be fatal. So it is one that can stay in your system for a long time, over a decade. And then when it gets into the last phase, which is called the tertiary phase, which is phase four, um, it can have such side effects on the body. It can be fatal. So it's one that is unusual and unique in that it has that representation and can can last for that long. But um, so, again, we just talked about the several stages in terms of each Kind of category from primary to secondary to latent phase to tertiary, each has their own symptoms. But the biggest one that people I think can identify with are the skin lesions. Mm. Um, if you, you can Google this um, and you can see like the beginning stage, like at the primary stage, or you have like maybe one single lesion. And just to kind of get informed about what syphilis can look like, because it can be confused with other disease processes. I mean, it's known as like the great imitator, because it can be confused with other skin diseases and abnormalities. So you might have syphilis and really not know it if you just if you also have like eczema or psoriasis or have skin issues to begin with. But if I knew, you know, had seen a picture of it and I see it, I might be like, that looks Maybe like something needs to get checked out. Um, So, yeah, it's one that can be passed along unintentionally just because people are uninformed about it Mm -hmm. in terms because it's a skin issue primarily at first. And so it can be passed through contact with the sores um, and that that can occur around the outer parts of the genitals, in the vagina, um, also around the anus and in the rectum or in and around the mouth. So any of those areas that have open sores, that's where they get passed. So um, if you do not
0: have open sores, does <clears> that mean <throat> that you are not able to pass it to someone else?
1: I would say it is the, the open sore, the liquid from inside the open sore that contains the bacteria that, that can pass it. But if you still have a dry sore, um friction from sex or activities can easily rub that open. And so I also would be cautious with playing with someone with um dry sores. Mm -hmm. And just because you might see dry store dry sores on externally, they might have open sores internally and Mm -hmm. those you just won't know about. So does that make sense?
0: Definitely. This one sounds a little bit scarier than the previous one when we talked about chlamydia. Like this sounds Potentially a lot more serious.
1: So the reason is, yes. The reason this is scary is because when you have like your primary reaction, it's just like one or two skin lesions and then those suckers go away. And you're like, okay, well, that was odd. Maybe I have like poison ivy or something. And then you don't think about it again because it doesn't come back until you go into like the secondary phase, which is kind of where you have like a diffuse rash. And then that can be kind of explained away by, did I get poison ivy? Did I eat something that I kind of had an allergic reaction to? Um, The big thing that makes syphilis stand out besides other like reactions you could have to other stimuli is that in your secondary phase, when you have that rash, it's frequently seen on your palms of your hands and then the soles of your feet. And so those should be big indicators that if you have rashes on those two areas to really get that checked out. So a rash on my hands
0: and or feet could be an indicator. Okay. On the palms of the hands and soles of the feet. So, and that could be an indicator that that I have
1: syphilis. <clears throat> yeah. So if you came into me and I was assessing your skin and like, you know, you had acne and you had like eczema on your knees and you had, you know, psoriasis on your elbows, but then I see rashes on the palms of your hands and the soles of your feet. That's just an unusual finding to see in any type of skin rash. Mm-hmm. So that's going to make any clinician be like, huh, wonder if something else is going on here. Um, there's common, now there are some diseases that in your, your kid population that can bring that up in the palms, but we're not going to get into that. Sure. But yeah, so when you reach your secondary phase, it starts presenting a little bit more differently, almost to like alert you to it. Like, Hey, Mm -hmm. you know, you had that time in the primary phase. And you kind of didn't do anything about it. So here we go again. And it's going to be, and it gets more annoying if it's on your feet and your hands, because it's hard to hide. It's mm-hmm. more noticeable. Um, it might make you a little bit more self-conscious and want to get it checked out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's so, so your random. Your trying sexual... to give you
1: some warning, mm-hmm. you know, yep. Um, That's just so bizarre to me that it would show up on your hands
0: and feet like that, like something I know. sexually related. That's, it just sounds so random. Yeah.
1: But thankfully it does. So then it kind of eliminates some other um, random, more common skin issues. Yeah, It'll rule that out. And then you have what's called latent phase, which is really just the dormant phase. And that's where it just kind of is in your body. And it just is in there for like years and you have no symptoms whatsoever. So if you've gotten through the primary stage, you had one lesion and you're like, "Eh, it was a fluke. And then you get through the secondary phase And you have the rash on your your feet and your hands, and then you don't get treated, then it will go away and then you'll be in stage three. And then that can stay and stay, you can stay in stage three for years. Um, then eventually, if it's untreated, you will for sure go into stage four, which is called the tertiary stage, and that is where I messed up my hair there. (laughs) Um, And that is what's called the late stage. And that's where you have like your neurological changes. You can have organ damage and failure, heart issues, and that's where it can be fatal. But again, this is curable. So I can totally understand someone not picking up on it in the primary stage. We all have weird skin stuff. I mean, just based on what you're exposed to or what you're eating. But if I start getting little weird bumps on my hands and my feet, I'm going to be looking into that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, because if
0: you don't catch it in that second stage, the third stage, there's really <laughs> nothing there to, to indicate that there's anything to look into.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And then you don't know till fourth stage. Yeah. So, um, so yes, so this can, um, you, this can be diagnosed with a blood test but it's, it's easily treated with antibiotics. So again, like chlamydia, it's treatable with antibiotics. And then, yeah, what they do recommend is after you finish treatment for syphilis, that you wait like maybe three months and get retested to make sure you're negative. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that would also depend on what phase you're in, right? Sure. If it's found in secondary phase, it's been in your body longer, you want to make sure just one course of antibiotics does the trick and you have a negative test.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also to be clear, like, we're not here to tell people like, this is how you should treat if you get, if you test positive for an STI or an STD, right? Like you should definitely like seek, seek clinical attention and like definitely like take your doctor's advice and follow their instructions. But this is really just to give folks like an idea of like, here's kind of what you can expect. Here's you know taking some yeah. of the fear of the
1: unknown out of it right and to know it's curable should relieve a lot of, of stress i think To be, yeah okay absolutely well, you know because it can be the the stigma associated with just getting there and saying hey i think i might have this but it makes it does make it a little bit easier when you know there's a cure absolutely thing, to get there all right next one gonorrhea gonorrhea is another one that's curable so I'm hoping through this, this discussion that, you know, the stigma around these will be minimized because so three, the so far the first three have been curable. Um, so gonorrhea, it's, it can be diagnosed with a urine test. It is a very common STI. Um, And it can infect the genitals, rectum and throat. So, and again, some people can have no symptoms at all. I know that's scary as hell to think about. But if you do have symptoms, again, people with a penis are gonna have a burning when they pee out their penis and it can be kind of not just at the tip but the whole thing kind of burns, um, the whole tube, I guess. Um, And then they can have a white, yellow or green discharge from the penis. So that should definitely raise some, some flags. And then painful or swollen testicles again. So, you know, you get the penis upset, it's going to get those testicles involved is what I'm learning here. Mm-hmm. And then for um, those that have a vagina, um, they most of the time don't have symptoms. But when they do, they are often mild and can be mistaken for like a bladder or a vaginal infection. Mm-hmm. So again, they most, most of uh, those with the vagina don't have symptoms, but even if they do, they're really mild. And so the symptoms, again, can be similar to a bladder or vaginal infection, which would be pain or burning with pain, increased vaginal discharge, and then vaginal bleeding between periods. Mm. So this is, um, oh, you can also have rectal infections with gonorrhea. And so you can have discharge, itching, soreness, bleeding, and then pain when you have bowel movements. So those are all indicators of rectal involvement. Um, and then this again is treated with antibiotics you wait seven days after you finish that treatment before having sex again and um, if untreated it can cause health problems so if if you had gonorrhea and it didn't get treated it'll like you know start affecting the vagina and it'll just move on up and start affecting like the uterus and stuff so you can have like infertility issues and such or pelvic inflammatory disease—things you just don't want when it can be treated and cured.
0: So, so I think what I'm what I'm hearing, what I'm learning about all these different um, STIs is that it's especially for the ones that are curable. Like, look into it sooner rather than later. Get tested sooner rather than yeah. later, because if you let it go and you catch it later on, it's going to cause a lot more issues than it than yeah. it you know, needed to. Yeah,
1: because yeah. they're they're infections. Just like if you had a sinus infection, you go to the doctor, you get an antibiotic. It's cured. You move on. You know what I mean? But if you don't get antibiotics, that bacteria in there is just gonna get worse and worse and make a home and it'll start spreading. Um, same thing here. We're just talking about getting it sexually versus, you know, a science yeah. infection. Yeah. Makes sense. And then this one, gonorrhea can be diagnosed using a swab. Cool. So, yeah. Any questions about miss gonorrhea?
0: No questions about Okay, It's nice to know that these can be tested so easily, like just with a swab. Like that's, that's not scary.
1: Yeah. So you can, um, you know, I always get tested when I go for for my yearly, at my OBGYN, and then I'll plan out my yearly physical at my primary care six months later and get tested again. So that automatically gets me two tests in for the year that are covered by my insurance. But there's also like... Um, STD test places in town, you can go to the health department, you can get a kit at the pharmacy and test for yourself that tests for all different kinds that can be tested in your urine. There are some that, um, like HIV that has to be tested for in blood. That's the most reliable Mm -hmm. way to test for that. So you wouldn't be able to do that. I don't think from an over the counter. Um, if you could, I'm not sure if you could do it for an over the counter or not, Um, that gets into all kinds of issues of like, I would like to think if, if I felt like I needed to be tested for that, that I would need to go somewhere and get those results so that I could get counseling if it did come back positive versus getting my test at home and being like, oh gosh, what do I do now? You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's understandable. I can't speak confidently to if you can do an at home test for that. Okay. So now we're moving into, vaginitis which has all kinds of categories so vaginitis is curable it is an infection related to a bacteria that basically causes inflammation of the vagina or vulva and you have several different types i'm just gonna hit on real quickly you have bacterial vaginosis which is really just simply when there's a change in the balance of the vaginal bacteria um that can happen if someone sticks some dirty fingers in me, or if there's a sex toy that is dirty or wasn't cleaned appropriately or dust or, you know, just dirty, filthy, fun can make that happen. But it still occurs because something's inserted, uh, perhaps. And so it is, it does fall underneath that category of STDs, STIs. And then you have a yeast infection that again can incur- occur, um, because, you know, vaginas are fickle little things. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. So if you just uh, fuck and it's so dry and, and you per like, let's say you prefer it dry, but you don't use lube and you mess up that internal environment, you can get a yeast infection. You know what I mean? It's like, listen, girl, like, give me some lube and I'll, you know, and so that again can be a sexually um, relevant thing that can happen. So yeast infection is worth noting. So are yeast
0: infections
1: always uh, sexually transmitted? No, you can get a yeast infection. um, So it's like a overgrowth of your fungal organisms. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes you can get a yeast infection um, from taking antibiotics because antibiotics can kill bacteria. And if it doesn't pick and choose, then it'll kill some of your vagina bacteria. So you can get a yeast infection. So like me personally, if I'm ever on an antibiotic, I'm always like, okay, can you just go ahead and call in a can? Cause I'm going to need that. Cause I know I'm going to get a yeast infection. So mm. medicines can do it. Um, if let's see, perfumes can do it. So I know some people that are maybe a little um, sensitive about their smells. And so they will just perfume it up. And, you know, too much of that can, you know, make its way in there and that can disturb the environment and cause it to happen.
0: So, Um, so I think what I'm hearing is that yeast infection, you said a yeast infection is one of the types of vaginitis. So it can be sexually transmitted, but it is not always sexually transmitted.
1: Absolutely. Correct. Yes. Okay. Now, the one that is sexually transmitted is, it's called, I'm going to have to. Pronounce this correctly. Trichomoniasis. Oh, that's a fancy trichomoniasis. word. Trichomoniasis. <laughs> it falls underneath the vaginitis category, but it is an outlier in that it is a sexually transmitted um, infection, and that's just basic. And it's a parasite, so it also is a little bit more different because it's not—it's it, a parasite and not like a bacterial infection. So um, it is one that is also curable. And it is a, ve- it's the most common STI out there. And so it is, it's nice that it's curable and 70% of people don't have symptoms. Um, wow. Cause it's just a little parasite in there.
0: So yes. when you say parasite, like that puts me a little <clears throat> bit on edge, that feet that word itself feels a little bit scarier. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about like what that means?
1: Well, so you have all kinds of different infections you can get. You can get a fungal, you can get a viral, you can get a bacterial, and you can get a parasitic. And this is just saying that uh, this type of vaginitis is parasitic. So it is one that is an outlier in that a lot of your STIs or STDs are not parasitic. And this is one that is. So it does sound a little a bit harsher just because it's probably not a word that's used often, but that's because we don't have many to use it with. Mm. So I wouldn't get concerned about, is a parasitic infection worse or better than one of the other infections? What we need to focus on is that it's curable, just like the others so far. Awesome. Which is great. Yep. And so um, it can be diagnosed um, with a swab of like vaginal discharge to identify a cause or the other ones. Like if I go to the doctor and they suspect, like maybe I have a bacterial infection, you would do a urine test and test for like the pH and, and see what that level is. So again, just go to the doctor and see, you know, and then um, let's see. The urine test can identify or detect the presence of the parasite. And then a vaginal swab can can do that as well. Let's see. Treated with medicine, like I said, it says to avoid reinfection, all partners should be treated with antibiotics at the same time. Because it's a parasite. So it can get it can get passed around. And then you need to wait to have sex until after finishing the treatment or and or if any sign of symptoms go away, which is usually about a week. So again, my rule is always 10 days because I'm like if one STD or STI says to wait 10 days, I'm just gonna put them all under there. I can go three more days, you know? Yep. Yeah, so, just do
0: the most cautious category. Yep. Yeah.
1: And then they do say to get um, they recommend to get retested in three months, three months to ensure that you have it been infected again. That's okay. It's infected, you can be yeah. re- infected. Re- infect. All right, moving on. Genital herpes. This one is not curable, but it is very manageable and treatable. So um, we, the, here's where genital herpes gets a little confusing and it can get a bad rap. Because you can have oral herpes, which is herpes simplex virus one, which is where you get like cold sores and stuff around your mouth. Just because you have oral herpes doesn't mean you have general genital herpes. It's two different categories. Um, in terms of genital herpes, um, it's like the, it's a top two, if you will. So they even distinguish them in their names and you only can get genital herpes if you come into contact with someone that has genital herpes to begin with. And, um, it says you can test for this with a blood test. Um, but if it, they have like a low viral load, because again, it's a virus. So if you have a low viral load, it can go undetected. So I can have a flare in the genital herpes and have like the lesions and stuff. And then that go away. And then five years later, go get a blood test done. And it would be such a low viral load that it's undetectable. Now, just because it's undetectable doesn't mean that you don't have it. It just means that it can't be detected in your blood. So if I had genital herpes 30 years ago and I've had, I had one outbreak then and I haven't had one since I'm still going to inform my partners that I had that history 30 years ago or whenever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I can say, you know, each year I get a blood test to confirm that my viral load is unidentifiable or undetectable. So that is one that remains in your system, but isn't necessarily detectable. But I still think it's it's valid to tell your partners about, even if it's been 30 years since you've had the, the breakout.
0: I feel like there's so much controversy around genital herpes or um, HSV2 is what I typically call it. Okay. Um, and it just... Like everything that you're sharing like leads to so many questions in my head of like, okay, if I've had it a really, really long time ago and I get a blood test and it's not detectable, that doesn't mean that I don't have it. I still have it. But if it's not detectable, then how much does that matter? Can I pass it along? Yeah, if it's that so, low
1: in my bloodstream? Like, yeah, is it it's very, possible? very, very unlikely that if it is undetectable in your system, that means the viral load is so low that that you it was very unlikely that you would pass it along. However, and the same applies to HIV when we get, when we get to that STD, um, they have some good, some commonalities. However, even if I had HIV and my viral load was so low, it was undetectable. Um, I would still tell someone that I had been diagnosed with HIV. So it's easy to kind of maybe, um, rationalize not telling about the genital herpes, but if you put it in the same category as viral load and risk, and if it's undetectable as HIV, it maybe will make it a little bit more clearer for people that it's still yeah. important to inform others about.
0: Well, and just because it's undetectable and there's, there's a lower risk of spreading, it doesn't mean that there's no risk, right? So like at the exactly. end of the day, it's not really, it really shouldn't be your choice, whether or not you Correct. give your partner the, the, opportunity to decide, like, do I want to take this risk or not? Right. Like it should exactly. be your partner's decision if they want to take that risk, Correct. even if it's a lower risk, it's still their Correct. decision.
1: It's yeah. still their risk and they need to be risk informed. Um, yeah, so yeah, exactly. So makes sense. Um let's see. It says most genital herpes infections are asymptomatic, which means there's no symptoms and, or they have very mild symptoms that go unnoticed or can be mistaken for another skin condition. Mm-hmm. And so the lesions, you can have one or more small blisters around the genital or rectum. Um, the incubation period, which is like the settling in time can be about four days, but then it can range from around two to 12 after exposure. So mm-hmm. there is a little bit of lag time between your body being exposed and your body doing something with that exposure, basically sure. uh, reacting to it. Um Again, this, what they would do is if I had genital herpes, I would go to the doctor and they would put me on like an, um, a medication, like an antiviral therapy, which is like basically one or two pills a day that helps to keep that virus load down to the point that hopefully it would be undetectable. And then I wouldn't have a flare or another breakout of genital herpes. Let's see. Yep. And then also that antiviral reduces the likelihood of spreading it to other people. So mm-hmm. it's good for you. It's good for others. Good for everybody. The awesome. Therapy. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Antiviral therapy. Very important. And then um, if someone is having an outbreak, then of course, avoid sex. And then okay. what I would say, I'm not sure the time frame on how long to avoid sex. And like after the outbreak is covered up and goes away, how long? So I would just refer to um, your clinical provider.
0: That makes sense. So, okay. So, so in regards to HSV2, I think what I'm hearing is um, make sure you get tested. It's, it's less likely to spread it if it's not detectable when you get that blood test. Um, Antiviral therapy can also reduce the risk of, of spreading it. And -hmm. then also avoiding sexual activity with others. When you have an outbreak, all of those things will reduce the risk of spreading it. If, if you have HSV2.
1: Correct, because you need to almost treat it like an active infection. So if you have the, um, like if you have the breakout, which means like you have the little skin lesions and then they break and then they become like they're oozing and they're wet, then the, and they can also be pretty painful, especially if they're in the genital area, then that can take two to four weeks to heal. And so that's Mm -hmm. considered the outbreak period is you have to get through that to be healed and on the other side of that for you to have gotten through the breakout. And then only then is when you would start discussing when to reinitiate sex or
0: and recovery. so um those <clears throat> lesions that you're talking about that can be kind of painful especially around mm-hmm. the genital area that's another reason to look into like antiviral therapy to avoid having yeah. those yeah inconvenient outbreaks
1: like that as yes. well that no one wants to deal with yeah yeah that makes sense and um, I mean, I personally know several people with genital herpes and I, re- I never remember when they were diagnosed and, you know, they were pretty devastated, understandably, and all the stigma associated with it and them having to go through telling partners and just the realization of, okay, I'm going to be on this pill for the rest of my life. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of Things that come along with the diagnosis when it's not curable, um, but I'm also happy to report that they also are like, "Oh, I just take this pill once a day, and I'm doing great." Um, so it and does that... not have to necessarily hold you back as much as you might initially think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mm-hmm. think that's really important when you when you reference that pill. Is that what the antiviral therapy? The antiviral. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So pill. Yeah. So that's just yep. taking a pill every day. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really good to know. I personally know multiple people with HSV2. Um, mm-hmm. I have dated someone with HSV2 before, and I remember at the time um that was kind of a, a new territory for me. Like I had never seriously considered like, would I be willing to explore a sexual relationship with somebody with an mm-hmm. HSV2 diagnosis? Um, and at the end of the day, like I had this discussion with myself, and the conclusion that I reached was. This person is no less deserving of romantic or sexual love or affection than anybody else in the world, mm-hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so there's, there's no reason for me to, to withhold that from them if we have that kind of connection. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as like what of my, what my level of comfortability is with them, I did a lot of research on HSV2 at the time. And so a lot of what I'm, what I'm hearing right now is, is echoing some of what I originally learned several years ago. Um, And it was very comforting to know that like the chances of like the risk of spreading it can be minimized so much based on a lot of the stuff that you've shared, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, avoiding activity during outbreaks and the antiviral therapy Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, getting regular tech, like all of those things really, really minimize the the chances of it spreading. It doesn't get rid of it, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. get rid Mm -hmm. of the risk entirely, but it minimizes it. And so at that point, it just becomes a question of like, what am I comfortable with? What level of risk am I comfortable with? Mm -hmm. Um, in regards to my relationship with this person, um, and also taking into account, like how many people out there have STIs and STDs. And for me looking into HSV2 specifically, a lot of people have HSV2 and Mm -hmm. they may or may Mm -hmm. not know it. They may or may not share that with you. Um, Mm -hmm. but it is surprisingly common. It's Mm -hmm. also surprisingly manageable. Like everything that you've shared about, like you just take a pill every day and that helps to like minimize symptoms and minimize outbreaks.
1: Well, and here's also what's interesting is, and we can talk about this after I get done with the other um, STDs I'm going to discuss, but, you know, genital herpes is, since it's not curable, I think most people would think, okay, I need to tell my partner or partners about this. But then the other ones where, Let's say I've had chlamydia 16 times, but it's curable and I take an antibiotic and it's gone, you know, it makes you wonder how many people have had one that's not curable and they don't offer that information because it won't directly affect you. So we're also only dealing with um, the information people are giving us. And so I do think STDs, STIs are more prevalent. It's just the curable ones maybe aren't shared as much because they're not seen as relevant at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Next one. All right. HPV. So this one, if you get HPV, it is not curable. Um, it's because it is a virus. It's known as the human papilloma virus, I believe. I probably just totally butchered that name. We're just gonna nope, go. No, you HPV. got it. You got it. That's yes. totally it. <laughs> So it's not curable, but it's completely freaking preventable. So, um, gosh, I remember when I was a kid, they had just come out, and my mom was like, "You're getting them. I'm stabbing you up with them." And so it was like a series of three, and they had just come out. And so um, it's a vaccine that's been prevented. Now, when you talk about HPV, there's over like 62 or 72 different cl- like types of HPV. Mm-hmm. The vaccine prevents some of the most deadly and harmful ones because there are a known like six or seven or 10 that are known to be linked to certain type of cancers. And so they've developed a vaccine, um, as best as they could to try to prevent you from getting those deadly HPVs that can lead to cancer. And so if you get the HPV vaccines, I think it's a series of three. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, it was anyway, um, Do know that you're not getting pumped up with all antibodies for like 72 different ones. It's like the ones that are the most harmful. So, so the
0: vaccine <clears throat> pre- prevents the the most serious ones, but it does not prevent all of them.
1: Correct. Yes. And so, when we talk about HPV, it is the most common STD in the United States, um, and it's known as a disease, an STD because it's not curable once you get it. So that's what. So that's why it's not an STI. Um, but again, we've already talked about how it's preventable with the HPV vaccines, and this is spread via vaginal, anal, or oral sex with someone who has the virus. Um, most of the time HPV goes away on its own, but when it doesn't, it can cause genital warts and lead to cancer. So this is also a test that let's say most of the time in those, um, humans with a vagina, it's detected on a pap smear. And so I'm trying to think back. I had, um, a friend that had it detected on a pap smear And so then what they did, it was like her yearly pap smear. Um, They told her, okay, we're going to see you in in six months. Instead of yearly, we're going to move it up to six months. And at six months, she got another pap smear and it came back HPV again. And so then they did like a little sample of the tissue. And I've had to have that done before for unrelated stuff. And so they did a little sample of the tissue and that tissue came back negative and normal. And so then she went back six months later, had another pap smear and her, the HPV was not detectable. And so they're like, okay, now we're going to go back to a year. So it's one of those where that can come and go and being detected. Um, you know, you can have people that it's detected once and never detected again on a pap smear. And then you can have those that it's detected and then it becomes a chronic issue and progresses to cancer. So Mm -hmm. it's one of those where Identifying it and just having it in your medical history is what's important. So then you can alter how you're going to monitor it um, after it's found. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So what I think what I'm hearing is that mm-hmm. um, HPV is not curable, but it is treatable. And when when you are diagnosed with HPV, results may vary. It may you know you may yeah. it may come up once and then never be detectable again and be a total non-issue, yeah. or it can become very serious, including like getting Cancer, depending on what kind you have, so it right. kind of varies all across the board. If you are diagnosed it with does. HPV,
1: yes, and so um, I didn't get into the specifics on how it's really treated. Um, I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to speak confidently to this, but I think it is again one of those watch and monitor processes. Mm-hmm. Um, And then again, the CDC recommends the HPV vaccine at age 11 or 12, but can start as young as nine. And then it can go actually through like middle-aged. I think they just increased, was it to 45?
0: They did actually. And I have a story around that because I remember I I
1: was like
0: 24 or 25 the first time that a doctor talked to me about getting that vaccine. And um, I think I got like the first shot and then I was like irresponsible, young adult, like classic classic 20s, Ava. Um, I did not get the other ones. And then I aged out and insurance wasn't going to cover it anymore because the limit at the time was like 25 mm-hmm. and I was 26. Yep. I'm like, oh, well, I I missed my window. Oh shucks, too bad. And then literally within the last like six months, I went to the yeah. doctor for like a regular checkup and they're like, yeah, they increased the age limit to 45. Like you, mm-hmm. we should do that for you. So mm-hmm. I actually have uh, my next round of that mm-hmm. in, I think a couple of weeks actually.
1: Good. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. yeah, I remember when it first came out, um the, my understanding was it was marketed towards getting um your younger children vaccinated before they became sexually active or before Mm -hmm. most people became sexually active so that you just didn't have the exposure to begin with and you had the protection in place. But at this point it's been proven that, hey, even if you've had a one sex once or a ton of sex, like it's better than nothing and it'll protect against some of them, even if you have you've already have some of them. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it recently got moved up to 45 age limit, which is great.
0: Yeah. So if you, if you haven't had that vaccine and you're under 45, talk to your doctor about it. Yep. That might yep. be something that they recommend for you.
1: Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right. So the last one, HIV, which I'm, I bet everyone's most informed about this one, but I could not, you know, skip it by but, um, So what HIV is, is it is a type of virus that basically weakens a person's immune system by destroying important cells that fight disease and infection. And so um, there's no cure for it. But now with medical advances and technology, it can be well controlled and managed with proper, proper medical care. And um, HIV, if it's untreated, can lead to what's called AIDS, which is the latest stage of HIV. It's like where you, you move from HIV to AIDS. Um, and so that is really unfortunate that with the proper medical care and treatment in place, that can be preventable for most people, the, the AIDS stage. And so symptoms, once you're, um, it's going to be, you can have flu-like symptoms within two to four weeks after and being infected or coming in contact or exposure with someone that has HIV. And that can last for a few days to several weeks. So that those flu-like symptoms like the sore throat, fever, chills, night sweats, muscle aches, just feeling like complete shit, um, mouth ulcers, swollen lymph nodes, that can last for several days, um, a few days or several weeks. So then we have three stages. You have the first stage, which is the acute, acute, acute phase. And that's where you have really high levels of HIV in the blood and you're very contagious because that's when your body's right, like just been exposed to the virus and it's just replicating and mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. What, so. Um, Zombie mode. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so a blood test can is what's used to, it, to confirm um, HIV. Now, I will say when I was doing some research on this, and I'm not sure how long this has been around. um,
0: So, stage
1: one, again, is the acute phase. That's where you have your high levels of HIV in the body and you're very contagious. And then you go into stage two, which is called the chronic phase. And this, again, is where you can be asymptomatic. So, that's where, like, when you go back to syphilis, you have your primary stage, it's like, hey, I'm here. Your secondary phase is like, hey, I'm on your hands and feet. I'm still here. And then your third phase, it's like, I'm just not going to tell you I'm here anymore for years. (laughs) And so same thing with HIV. It's like, Hey, stage one, you felt like shit for, for several weeks. I told you I was here. And then stage two is like, okay, I'm just going to be asymptomatic and just, you know, stew in here. Just going to hang out. (laughs) Just going (laughs) to hang out. And so HIV is still active, but um, but it's reproducing at a lower level when you're in the Mm -hmm. chronic phase or the stage two. And so, this stage can last for 10 years or longer without treatment. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah, so you can hang out in there. And um, yeah. And so HIV can still be transmitted in stage two. It's less likely, but it's still very much a possibility.
0: You you talked about mm-hmm. how it's really mm-hmm. contagious in stage one. Can you talk about how it's contagious? It's not contagious by like, if I cough
1: on you, you're going to get it, right? Oh, sure. Yes. Bodily fluids. Um, okay. Is how it's contagious in blood So you'll often get um, like blood play it can be something and, and like we'll go into talk and I'll talk about how like one of the safest safest most safe practices could be like oral sex and so if you have HIV and you have semen and I swallow that semen it's really unlikely that your the semen is going to give me HIV. What's going to happen is if I have open mouth sores or my gums are bleeding, the semen hanging out in my mouth and those opportunistic areas is what could expose me to the HIV that's in the semen. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if it finds a way to get into like a sore, like, I guess directly into a bloodstream, is that how you would phrase that?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And so that can be by sharing needles, even Mm -hmm. Um, if I have HIV and I'm sharing a needle with you, then that, yeah. So oftentimes even in the medical field, you know, if you have a needle stick, um, you get worked up for all the things, including HIV and you're monitored for, you know, a while to make sure that you weren't exposed to HIV. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yes. Okay. And then, um, so people who take that HIV medicine as prescribed, um, can, may never go into phase three and, or stage three and stage three is what's known as AIDS. And that's the one that's the most severe phase. Um, that's when you're at increased risk for infections, being diagnosed as AIDS, um, is through a blood test. And that's when like your CD four cell count drops. Um, or it's when, okay, when you're done with the blood test. So the, there are certain numbers they look for. When your CD4 cell count, which is a very specific blood test, when that drops below a certain number, I believe it's 200, then that can qualify you or, or introduce you into the AIDS phase. Um, and then also that that means you also have a very high viral load. Usually those Mm -hmm. go hand in hand and you're back very contagious again. So it's almost, I don't want to say you're back in stage one, but it's, you're back in like the very contagious stage when you have AIDS. So the Um, contagious level is kind of a roller coaster is what I'm hearing. Right. So when your viral load is high, you're very contagious. So your, your viral load is high in stage one when your body's just working it all up. And then your viral load is very high in your late stage, your stage of AIDS, because your immune systems hit so hard that it's made your viral load. This sits in there and replicates. Mm, I see. So then that makes you very contagious. Um,
0: I thought that I read something somewhere recently about HIV being curable. And I know that you said that it's not, but I thought that I read something about like there isn't something new that came out that
1: like you could actually get rid of it. So I'm going to get into this in just a minute. Okay, so okay, fair. one thing to note about stage three is without treatment at stage three, also known as AIDS, um people can live typically for about three years. So okay. it's a three-year survival. So that's pretty that with, without treatment. Without treatment, yeah. yeah. So um HIV you can get through anal or, or vaginal sex, sharing needles, syringes, etc. So now we're gonna talk about like HIV prevention and like pre-exposure and post-exposure. So HIV prevention medicines um, are on the market and one's known as PREP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, it's a very medical term. And then you have another one that's called PEP, P-E-P, and that stands for post-exposure prophylaxis. So if you have HIV and I am your partner and we have consensually agreed to... Um, Participate in sexual activity that could expose me to HIV. I could be on PrEP, which is pre-exposure, trying to prevent myself from getting HIV when I participate in those activities. Let's say I participate in an activity and I wasn't aware that the person had HIV, but I am told after it's done that there was a possibility or maybe it was a one night stand or something, or it just wasn't as informed or educated about it before you went into it. And you're like, Hey, wonder if there's something called PEP, which is post exposure um, prophylaxis. And that has to be started within 72 hours of when the exposure happened. And so that one's a bit time sensitive. Um, so here's what you need to know: the, the the PEP needs to be started within the 72 hours, and it's a 20 day course of medicine. Um, they can do the rapid testing using an oral fluid um, or finger stick to diagnose, and I understand like the the helpfulness of a rapid test. Um, but then you know they can also do a blood test to diagnose as well. Um, The medicines that people take are to help keep the viral load low and keep that CD4 cell number high. Mm -hmm. So back to stage three, when your CD4 number goes low, then your viral load goes high. And that's the AIDS phase. Um, And then, so yeah, there is... You can take medicines to the point, like when we spoke about the other STD-STI, to where your viral load can be undetectable, which is like, if you, if no one knew, there's nothing to say that you have HIV. However, you are taking the medicines to allow your body to make your viral load so low that it is undetectable. So, I understand the rationalization of saying it's cured because it's not detectable in the blood, but I have issues with that because you're still getting active treatment to keep Mm -hmm. it. That's like, um, I'm going to give a really simple example. It's like, if I have a patient come in and I'm like, do you have any medical history? And they're like, "Nope," And I'm like, you don't have high blood pressure. They're like, "Nope," And I go through their medicines and they're on an obvious medicine for high blood pressure. I'm like, well, what do you take this medicine for? For my blood pressure. And I'm <laughs> like, but okay. So they feel like they're taking the medicine. So they don't have high blood pressure anymore. Because their numbers are good. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. You have high blood pressure. That's why you're taking the medicine to treat the high blood pressure. To so manage You see it, yeah. what I'm saying? So that's yeah. just a very simplistic example. Um, I, I don't know. There might be some validity to, hey, if I have a low confirmed viral load for two years straight, does that give me the option to say it's cured or in remission or stable enough to, you know, so I'm not sure about that. That would be, that's a good question.
0: Well, and if we applied that logic to our earlier discussion about HSV2, you know, we kind of concluded that like, if you had a single outbreak 30 years ago and you haven't had an outbreak since then, and your viral load is so low that it's undetectable in your bloodstream, you still have HSV too.
1: You still—that's right? the conclusion
0: it. that we right. that we made. So I feel like that logic applies here. I right. not having done a lot of research on HIV myself or AIDS. Like I, I don't know if that logic is what the rest of society uses or not. But that's mm-hmm. kind of where my brain is going at least. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And I do understand the. Um, the positivity that comes from from saying it's curable and it gets more people maybe actively involved in their treatment and mm-hmm. it decreases the stigma around it. And I can totally understand that word being thrown around, but we need to be careful with how we're using it as well. Yeah. Um, if you're actively on medicines that are keeping it at such a low viral load, it can't be detected. And we know if you go off those medicines that that's no longer going to be the case for most patients. I, I feel like that's probably not the correct way to use the word curable.
0: Yeah. Well, and we might it, get it some feedback on
1: that. Me... I hope we get feedback from people because tell me what, you know, if I'm wrong or there's a different yeah. way for me to look at it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it does sound to me like the most like ethical way to deal with that type of situation is like, even if you were diagnosed a long time ago, and your viral load has been low ever since, it still makes sense to be upfront with somebody about that. Because again, it's, it's their decision, whether or not right. they're comfortable making that risk, right? Like it, right. the decision should be theirs.
1: Exactly. And, you know, you know, you have people that also have their own chronic immunocompromised conditions going on. So one person's immune system is not the same as another. And so their risk versus benefit might be different. So yeah, you just, Mm -hmm. it's a responsible thing to have, you know, to keep them informed and up to date so they can make that decision for themselves and their body. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. Um, I know we've talked about a lot of different STIs and STDs in this episode. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about like the stigma and like where that comes from and what, what can we do to address it? Because I feel like at least from where I'm sitting, the stigma around um, STIs and STDs keeps people from talking about it and it keeps people from getting tested. And it, um, it just feels like this big, scary thing to be avoided, right? I remember as a teenager being like utterly terrified about it and not being willing to talk to anyone about it and actually figure out like, what does this mean? Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I don't know if you have any opinions that you wanted to kick off with. Yeah,
1: no, I think we're still fighting the stigma of um, you know, having sex is dirty as evidenced by she got an STD. So see, Mm -hmm. I told you if you don't have sex, you won't get an S T D or an S T I. And so it does kind of um flare that back up again for people, I think. Um, so I'm not really sure how to fight the stigma against it, except just to normalize it as much as we can in conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I will personally say when I was younger, um, I had two one night stands and we did not have an STD talk because it was just like, it was uncomfortable and I was young and we were having a good time and blah, blah, blah. And like, we had a great time, but oh my God, as soon as it was done, I was like, what the fuck did you just not do? Like, it was just so irresponsible. Mm um. And so I completely understand the stigma against talking about it. But I think also just the the comfort and safety that can be reassured in bringing it up and talking about it. So you know that you're going into a situation with as much knowledge as possible. It's also really, really great. Having Absolutely. spoke from a perspective of having not done that and been like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, I, I have been in those <clears throat> shoes. I have so many memories of that, um, especially as a teenager or even in my early twenties, thinking yeah. like I, you know, want to be like a sex positive individual. I want my sexual freedom. I want to go on adventures and try all mm-hmm. the things and see what happens. And then looking back on it after and being like, oh, you really weren't very smart about that, Ava. What were you no. thinking? No,
1: and it's almost like it's that. Um, well, it, it. What are the chances that this one time? would be the time this would happen, you know? And I think a lot right. of people tell themselves that until they're yeah. that person. Um, and so we we still have that perspective of, it won't be me this one time, or I won't yeah. do it again. And yeah. yeah.
0: I think for me, overcoming the fear of, um, it won't be me, or it it could be me. like Like overcoming the concept of like, I absolutely cannot afford to have an STI or STD. Like overcoming that fear has been very important for me on my personal journey. I know that this is not the popular opinion, but I will share that for me, I I, I see that STIs and STDs are so common that so many people have them, um, and that it, there's a high likelihood that that's probably something that I will get at some point in my lifetime, mm-hmm. whether I want mm-hmm. it or not, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make me less. Deserving, um, mm-hmm. at, you know, of sexual affection, it doesn't make me less valuable as a human being. Um, and there are so many other people that have it. And as as we've talked about today, like uh, so many of these are either curable or mm-hmm. very easily manageable, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the end of the world if I do get an STI or STD, right? Yeah. So you know, where I kind of draw the line, like my my risk factor is like what I feel safest about. Um, is really about like, are we doing what we can to minimize risk of exposure? And Mm -hmm. are we doing what we can to minimize um, like side effects? Like, are we doing what we can to manage it? Right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like, for me, it's no longer about how do I avoid getting an STD or STI? It's really just about how do we go about this in a safe, a safer and more mindful way, Mm -hmm. not necessarily to avoid getting it period, but to manage it if it comes up. That's that's just
1: where I am, and I also think what is making it more difficult for people is, I mean, it is a known fact that most of your STDs, SDIs happen in your, you know, your earlier sexual years, and so that is a very um, difficult topic for anyone to Mm deal with, no matter what age, but particularly in those years. And so I think just the timing of it happening in your, and that might be the first medical thing you've ever been, you know, put in a position to deal with and just not having the history and knowledge of how to deal with it, period, um, and not having the resources because it's not talked about and it's seen as a stigma. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going against you in terms of how to successfully manage it um, well without some research and guidance. Yeah. Yeah um
0: i will share that i recall as a teenager having a scare thinking that i had an std um having some symptoms in in my nether regions right and turns out like i did not have anything it's not what i thought it was but i was so frightened when i i went to the doctor and and we were they they examined me and we we talked about it and they ran some tests and it was so frightening. I thought like, oh, dear God, I have something. I'm never going to be able to have sex again. I'm going to die alone. That was I the had the exact in my head.
1: same thing, like mm-hmm. where I thought I had just something unusual going on. And I just immediately thought, oh, my God, that's it. And that was right. And I knew I shouldn't have done that. And Game what on. am I going to say? And how am I going to hide the medicine from my parents at the house? Like it was it was just traumatic in the thought of having it and how to deal with it. Yeah. Um, And then not having it. So, you know, of course that was a relief, but it was just going through the what ifs if you did. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if we like as a society can get to a place where we can openly talk about these, even from early ages and acknowledge Mm -hmm. that this isn't the end of the world. It isn't game over. It's manageable. It's a thing that you have. Mm -hmm. You may be, you know, it may be curable or you may be taking a medication for it the rest of your life, but it's manageable and you can still get healthy, happy, sexy life right like these, these are question, also things so you can
1: have this is the one question before we wrap this up is what are your thoughts because mine are evolving on this and i go back and forth on on um this issue i brought up earlier about like if you had had a curable sti do you feel like that is relevant information to tell a partner about great question you know what i mean because i'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I personally think that it's important to disclose um, one, just because again, it should be the the other person's choice, you know, whether or not they choose to take that risk, even if it's something that's already been cured, right? Like it's still, it's still my decision if I'm comfortable with that or not, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I just, I think that bringing that up and sharing that in conversation also goes a long way toward, um, again, getting rid of that stigma. Like if I that's can openly I talk with yeah. you about it, I'm mm-hmm. hoping that that will generate trust because I'm willing to be so vulnerable with that type of conversation Right, and share that really intimate information with you. Like right. that's, I think that that, again, destroys the stigma and builds trust and vulnerability with another person. Mm
1: -hmm. And so, yeah, we have maybe this situation where, of course, we don't talk about them. And then we certainly probably don't talk about them if they're curable or if it was like in the past and it doesn't apply to the current partner or partners. But it offers you a really great opportunity to be like, yeah, I had that. And this is how we dealt with it. And, And, you know, it just opens up that conversation in a way to where it doesn't put them in a in a situation of like, oh, my gosh, like risk aware as much as just taking the stigma out of it Mm -hmm. with each conversation
0: yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. the more normal that it can feel the easier it's going to be Mm -hmm. to have those conversations and the more people will start to understand Mm -hmm. that whether if even if you have an st std or sti it is still not the end of the world you're still deserving of happiness and love and sexual affection you can Mm -hmm. still have those things in your life
1: that's Mm -hmm. okay yeah yeah gosh that was a lot of information that was
0: a lot of information. I yes, I thought that that was so helpful. I hope that viewers found it helpful too. Yeah, um, I know it
1: was information overload, but they were all important ones to me. Well, it's good. A lot
0: of people don't get this kind of education. We certainly didn't get this kind of information in high school, right? True.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. No. <laughs> Abstinence.
0: That that that's Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Cool. Um,
0: Okay. Let's wrap things up for the day. Um, Our next episode will be about how to tell someone to F off. And that's going to be all about (laughs) how to tell someone no, how to draw those lines in your life when folks are being pushy or expecting more of you, or when you like run into somebody like at a bar or a club and they're being a creep and they're not laying off. Like, how do you be um, assertive without being bitchy, I guess, is kind of how I'm, I'm thinking through that, that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that'll be a lot of fun. We'll be talking about that in the next episode. Um, if you have not listened to us before, please feel free to like us and to leave a review. We come out with episodes every Friday um, and you can view us um, on anywhere that you can listen to podcasts or you can also view us on YouTube. Um, so look us up there, Ethical Seduction. You can also check us out on our website, ethicalseduction.com. Um, you can also search for us as Ethical Seduction on Instagram and Facebook and FetLife and all the social media places. So please, whatever is your preference of social media platform, feel free to track us down and, and keep track of us there and interact with us a little. And if anybody has any questions or has any thoughts about anything that we shared today, feel free to leave a comment for us uh, down below. And I just, I'm really curious, like if we did not cover something that somebody wanted to discuss as far as Mm -hmm. sexual health goes, Mm -hmm. whether that's a specific STD
1: or STI Mm -hmm. or how to or there's updated information that I'm not aware of. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I know I'm, I'm sitting here educating you all, but I love to be educated as well. So yes, please. Yes.
0: (laughs) All right, folks. Thanks so much for your time. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in and, uh, over and out.
1: Bye. Bye.